Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lisa Thompson and the Natural History Museum of Utah have a new book out. It's called Wild Wasatch Front, an urban adventure guide that invites both locals and tourists to discover uh, unexpected nature thriving in cities and suburbs of the Wasatch Front. Lisa Thompson says if you know how to look, you can discover an astonishing number and variety of wild plants and animals living in your neighborhood. Wild Wasatch Front can help you meet your wild neighbors, explore their fascinating stories, and discover our interconnected lives. With each new neighbor you meet, your neighborhood will become a little richer. Lisa Thompson is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah, where she developed the Nature All Around Us exhibit. She's fascinated by how culture shapes the way we define nature and passionate about helping people connect to nature in their everyday lives. Lisa Thompson, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on your show. This is a fascinating book. I think it's uh, published today, is it? It's officially released today. Today is the release date. Well, this is great. Uh, Wild Wasatch Front. Uh, so just to explain to people, it's in three parts. You've got some essays at the beginning, right? And then a bunch of species that you can yes. encounter. And then some nature uh, trails. Exactly. So um, the first uh, part of the book is a series of nine essays written by um, professionals and writers who think a lot about the relationship between nature and cities. And I like to think of it as a, a kaleidoscope that you can turn nine times. And each time you turn it, you look, get a look at urban nature through a different lens, whether it be water or trees or community health or um, human health. And then the second part of the book is um, a guide to 127 species that are really common in urban areas along the Wasatch Front. And I like to think of this part of the book as that person in your neighborhood who knows everybody. And when you're out walking on the street and you and you stop and talk with them and another neighbor comes by who you've seen before, but you don't know their name and it's a little awkward and you don't you've never introduced yourself before. But this neighbor can introduce you and tell you about them and say, oh, you both like knitting or you both like skiing. And now you know each other. You've been introduced. And so the next time that you meet, you'll you'll feel comfortable um, building a relationship together. And then the last part of the book, like you say, is a series of field trips. It's um, this part of the book is your adventure guide um, to exploring urban nature, uh, 21 places between Ogden and Provo, where you can meet more of the species in the book and kind of discover the really fascinating ways that, that human history and natural history blend in these um, urban nature environments. Now, this is Wasatch Front, so, uh, you know, I guess Ogden to Provo kind of thing. But um, the principles we'll be talking about apply, I'm sure, all over Utah. We broadcast all over the state. Certainly, certainly. And um, I think, you know, many of the species that are uh, featured in the book are common to urban areas all around the, the West and all around the country as well. I uh, just want to mention uh, one of the species in the book is a mountain lion. Yeah, uh, there's a picture of mountain lion. You you mentioned that mountain lions are elusive, but you know they are found sometimes in that that urban wildlife interface. Uh, here at Utah State University in Logan, where I'm broadcasting from, we just had an alert go out over the over the USU system. A mountain lion spotted in near some of the dorms. So it does happen. <laughs> there are mountain lions around. They certainly are. I think we're um, in a dance 
right now with mountain lions and mule deer and humans along you know the 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 Wasatch front and up in Logan as well where um, mule deer are migrate seasonally uh, up into the mountains in the summer but then come down into the foothills in the winter so the foothills are also places where humans like to live and so we've developed much of their their winter habitat and mule deer have had to adapt to living with us. And there's some perks to it for them there. You know, we plant lots of delicious things that they like to eat. Um, we it, There are lots of good places for cover in our neighborhoods. There tend to be fewer predators, too. There are definitely downsides. Cars are a huge downside for mule deer. And also, sometimes people want to feed them alfalfa or apples or in the winter when their um, digestive systems are not attuned at that time to process those uh, materials. Their, their ruminants and, and their digestive systems are set up at this time of year to process, you know, the really low grade twigs and bark that they can find in their environment. So a mule deer might get sick or even die with a full stomach of yummy things that, that a well-meaning person has let out, left out for them. But then the, the mountain lion's primary uh, prey is the mule deer. And so they'll be following the mule deer. Um, and like, you, like you mentioned, sometimes we get an alert and sometimes more often they're just very elusive and they're moving you know, at night uh, through the shadows in our communities. And for the mountain lions, there are some perks to being in our neighborhoods, which is that there are uh, a reliable source of prey, but also downsides in the form of cars and in low human tolerance for mountain lions, especially if they get lost and find a little, come a little bit uh, deeper into our communities. But I think that they are an example of, of a way that we um, are learning to share spaces in our communities with species that have been here a long time as we all want to live in the same habitats. Yeah, I've gotten used to seeing mule deer here at Logan in Cache Valley, uh, especially early in the morning if I'm, you know, driving somewhere. I'd, uh, you know, see mule deer crossing the road or heading heading back up the hills, or maybe even not doing that. Maybe just uh, walking down the the road. Yeah, there's evidence that some um, populations of mule deer along the Wasatch Front are becoming quite urbanized, that they are choosing to stay, even in the summer, lower down um, as a way that they might be able to um, raise their fawns uh, farther away from predators. Uh, so I guess if people are, you know, kind of like the deer, don't leave yummy stuff out. You know, just let them eat the twigs and stuff. Right. Let them... Uh, there's they're finding enough to eat in our neighborhoods. <laughs> okay, um, you you um, you say that this uh, the book came out of an exhibit called Nature All Around Us at the Natural History Museum of Utah. So you asked a question. You write in your introduction. Uh, you asked a question to visitors. Uh, asked them where they experienced nature in their lives. What what did uh, what did they say? Most often, people said the places that typically spring to mind when we think of nature, like a national park or um, mountains, canyons. Um, and some people told us any way, anywhere that there aren't people is where they could experience nature. Uh, which, of course, is not true, right? I guess. And, and, and people, those same people that answered the question that way probably have a bunch of nature where they live. They're just not noticing it, I guess. Right. I think it 
Um, it's interesting, and we pushed people a little further to tell us about how they defined nature and some people or the relationship between cities and nature. And some people would tell us that um, that those things were opposites, that they actually couldn't coexist. Or that if there was nature in cities, it was kind of fake nature. It wasn't real nature. But um, the point of view that the exhibit and the book takes is that actually cities and nature are intimately intertwined and that, um, that having thriving urban nature actually makes our cities livable. Um, you also uh, mentioned in the book here that there's no line where nature stops and cities begin. I think it's an important point. Yeah, even in places uh, along the Wasatch Front where there appeared to be hard boundaries because of changes in land use for, you know, for example, backyards butt up against Forest Service land, and it looks like there's a hard line there. There's, you know, plants, animals uh, are always moving across that that line and connecting those two seemingly different habitats. Uh, do you think maybe people answer that question that I could see myself maybe answering the question that way that, that the majority did? Um, but because I guess we get in our routines, right? I get you just come to work tomorrow this morning, I got my car, I drove the usual routes, uh, and maybe I wasn't tuned in to the nature around me. I think that's absolutely true. I think here in along the Wasatch Front, we're particularly spoiled in that we have easy access to places that we traditionally define as nature. So those easily jump to mind. And then, like you say, we may not be attuned to thinking about the nature that we can find every day in our community and noticing that nature. Uh, the first essay in the book is by Emma Maris, who people are familiar with her um rambunctious garden for example one of her books uh, right. wonderful writer um she talks about uh loving one of the, the the species that you can find in in a lot of you know cities the eurasian collared dove um and she says researchers believe bird feeders like hers have helped the the eurasian collared doves uh, spread so there, there's kind of a symbiosis between us and and the doves Yes, and I think um, it's interesting when you're, um, so she asked the question, are, 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 are these birds just essentially pets that she and people like her all around the United States are supporting? But then she expands her argument out a little bit to think about, well, that Eurasian collar dove um, may be eaten by a hawk or by a fox uh, in, in her neighborhood. And in that way, it becomes naturalized into the ecosystem. And the, the broader story she's telling is about novel ecosystems, which is the idea that in cities, there are combinations of plants and animals coming together from all over the world that have never existed before and creating these um, you know, new ecosystems. And her essay explores kind of what, what are the values of those new ecosystems. Uh, and then she she does a little bit of definition. She said a a tidy garden isn't quite a novel ecosystem because we plant the you know and manage that and weed it. Mm -hmm. um, but an old farm field, uh, right? Um, or abandoned you know barn could could be a novel ecosystem. Sure, or a vacant lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you have a picture here in the book of uh, of a uh, of a Cooper's Hawk, and you mentioned that uh, you know that this the novel ecosystem set up the Eurasian dove comes in the hawk preys upon it. We've got an ecosystem going. Yes, and but I think it's interesting that humans are definitely part of that ecosystem too. So when you think about that interaction, it's between a human being who's putting out bird seed, um, you know, a a couple billion dollar a year bird seed industry, the Eurasian collared dove and the hawk. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, interesting interconnectedness, right? Right. That and you're saying that it's it could benefit us from noticing this. Right. Not ignoring it. Yeah. Well, I think then it just shows how we're all connected together. Emma Morris, uh, she talks about naturalized nature, which seems like a funny, uh, a funny term. Um, but, but she says it's a sign of nature's resilience. Yeah, she talks about how sometimes the species that um, are in novel ecosystems are very hardy generalists um, that uh Sometimes we're not overly fond of, like uh, because they're new, oftentimes. But that these may actually be the plants and animals that um, will be able to survive um, as the climate is changing, or just simply in cities can be rough environments to survive sometimes. And that these may be the types of ecosystems that will, um, you know, be able to. Um, uh, prevent erosion and, you know, help absorb uh, um, heavy metals and, and other chemicals in the environment just because they are so tough and that we should think about them and as the benefits that they're bringing to our communities and how they can help us be more resilient. Uh, we've talked about the mule deer and uh, Riley Black in her essay mentions the mule deer um, as a synanthrope. I hadn't been familiar with that term. Yeah, synanthropes are animals that thrive alongside human beings. So sin being with and anthropes being you know, human beings. And so um, there are some iconic synanthropes like um, house sparrows that actually, when you think about like what is their natural habitat, it's humanity. They've evolved um, to live alongside us for, um, for over 12,000 years now. When human beings started farming, uh, house sparrows figured out that we provided a constant source of grain that they could pick up in, in, in fields that we left behind, decided they wouldn't have to migrate anymore and that they would just stick with us. And you can even see the relatedness in our DNA um, over the past 12,000 years, both human beings and house sparrows have um, uh, evolved this, a similar genetic mutation that allows us to process starchy foods better, like the grains that, mm. that we grow through agriculture. And now house sparrows really don't live anywhere that human beings don't live in. Um, if, if a town is abandoned, house sparrows abandon it as well. And I love that they even continue to to figure us out. Like they, uh, if you might have noticed how sparrows in a big box store or in an airport, um, sometimes it's because they have learned to operate the sensors in front of the automatic sliding doors. They either know to flutter in front of it <laughs> or to perch on top of it and bend over and activate it so that they can access another <laughs> delicious source of food that they're providing to us. Yeah, very, very clever. Yeah. Um, another one you mentioned is, or Riley does in the in the book, 
Peregrine falcons, uh, you mentioned, uh, went nearly extinct in North America in the 1960s, and there was a revival program. I think a lot of us remember this, a revival program based in cities. Right, that there was a captive breeding program. So as peregrine falcons were um, on the brink of extinction due to the impacts of the pesticide DDT, which weakened their the eggshells so that their, their chicks couldn't hatch and survive, um, there was a very deliberate captive breeding program that was based in cities. And these um, uh, captive bred peregrine falcons were released in cities. And in many places now, the, the their populations are really heavily urban. And there were, um, for many years, um, breeding peregrine falcons on the um, Joseph Smith Memorial Building, the old Hotel Utah in downtown Salt Lake City. And um, I don't believe there's a pair there anymore, but I, I think that there is a pair breeding further south on the new um, Intermountain Hospital uh, down uh, in Murray. Um, cities may be making raccoons smarter. That's a caption to the a, a wonderful photo of a raccoon resting on a on an air conditioning unit. Yes. So uh, raccoons are also a. Uh, animal that is thriving in cities. And researchers have been um, studying whether urban raccoons are better at solving problems than rural raccoons. Mm -hmm. And they find evidence that um, urban raccoons are much more persistent and adept at solving problems and theorize that basically living alongside us in an urban environment, they uh, we it just provides them many more puzzles and tests that they allows them to build their skills and rewards that persistence and curiosity about new things in their environment and so that they're continually becoming smarter. <laughs> Now, it occurs to me, uh, maybe look, don't touch. I mean, a lot of these animals will, you know, be mountain lions, very elusive. You don't want to tangle with a mountain lion. Um, uh, for example, I was, was thinking of the raccoon or bats, for example, that we encounter. Some of these species could have rabies. Uh, it could be some dangers there in interactions. Yes. So I would definitely advise that we always give um, the animals we encounter respectful space, especially like, for example, raccoon feces can carry diseases. Um, like you say, they're, you know, tangling with a mountain lion would never be a good idea. So I think it's learning part of um, uh, enhancing our relationship with urban nature is learning how to live respectfully with each other in ways that keep both people and animals safe. Um, and uh, Riley Black, uh, in an article, says, don't forget the plants. And there's a wonderful photo of a, looks like a bus stop and a fire hydrant, and growing all around that is, is, is uh, sunflower. Yeah, sunflowers are so incredibly tough. Um, they seem to be thriving everywhere in, in the crack, in the sidewalk. I've seen them growing, like, in the concrete medians along I-15, and um, they they even were growing in um, fields um, near the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power plant. The sunflowers have the ability to absorb even um, 
the, the toxins that were left over in the soil after the Chernobyl disaster. And so they were used as a cleanup crew there. But they're another plant that's been thriving alongside humans um, now for thousands of years. It's, they were cultivated, um, I believe, as long as 4,000 years ago in the Americas. And um, so we have had a, a really long relationship with them. Riley Black in her essay says that uh, nature is often framed as a phenomenon that is out there, away from people, in unspoiled places, and that ecologists are using synanthropes to redefine nature, or understand nature in a new way. Right. I think that um, culturally we have often thought as there's um, a bifurcation between things that are human and things that are natural, and the natural exists far away and uh, in places where humans don't live. And synanthropes really are um, test that theory, right? And and show that in, that there are a number of species that in fact thrive alongside us, depend upon us, and that our lives are intimately intertwined and that we can understand those relationships in, in new ways as well. I want to just mention uh, right here, there there's a phenomenon here in Cache Valley um, uh, there's a Walmart, uh, store that is had, I think they purposely, um, did a little wetlands there and there's some beavers living there, which is, which is just tremendous. Wonderful. You can go up to the, up to the Walmart and see some beavers and they're just living, they're just living right there because that's a that nice is- example of, of, you know, this is the kind of a uh, habitat created for them. That's fantastic. And beavers are actually fairly common urban species. Um, But, you know, we don't think of them because they're so, I don't know, so big and iconic in a way. But um, they tend to do pretty well in, um, you know, places, uh, urban places that have a river or a wetland that they can move into. Uh, Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll have much more with uh, Lisa Thompson. Uh, she, along with the Natural History Museum of Utah, have a new book out just today. It's released today. It's called Wild Wasatch Front, an urban adventure guide that invites, invites uh, us to discover unexpected nature living in the cities and suburbs of the Wasatch Front. And uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Lisa Thompson. She's an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah, where she developed the Nature All Around Us exhibit. And based on that exhibit, uh, now there's a new book out out just today. It's uh, called Wild Wasatch Front. It's a uh, urban adventure guide inviting us to discover unexpected nature thriving in the cities and suburbs of the, uh, the Wasatch Front. Uh, so, Lisa Thompson, I want to turn to an essay by Amy Sybil. Is that how you'd say her name? Yes. Yes, Amy. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be at University of Utah, now University of Oregon, right? Um, Correct. She talks about backyard habitats um, and that our, uh, we can cooperate here, right? We can, we can turn our yard into a habitat for various species. So what, uh, what are some suggestions? Yeah, so there's... A- a pretty basic recipe for creating um, a habitat for wildlife in your yard. And um, it's thinking about how you can provide food, water, um, shelter, cover, and places to raise young. 
And um, the most common wildlife that we have in our yards are um, birds and invertebrates, um, insects like pollinators and butterflies, you know, lots of things. So um, Amy in her essay talks about how you can think about creating both uh, habitat for um, birds, and she's especially interested in bees. She has a background in beekeeping. And um, thinking about birds, about how to provide sources of food for them um, in uh, the, you know, whether it's um, uh, plants that uh, have seeds or plants that have berries that provide food year round or plants that attract insects that the birds might eat. And then having multiple layers within your yard that those, that those birds can use. And she also talks quite a bit about um, the solitary bees that live um, uh, we tend to think of honeybees as the as the species that comes to mind when you when you talk about bees, but they're unusual in that they live together in um, large colonies and have uh, their their honey and young to defend. Most uh, wild bees are solitary, and since they don't have a large colony that they're part of, and that they uh, tend to be. Uh, not much less likely to sting you. But there you can make space for them in your yard by many of them nest in the ground. So just by having a little bare spot on the ground where they can build their nest or some of them uh, nest in cavities and you can either buy a bee box that's like a series of hollow tubes in which they can build their nest or um, build your own. Uh, it's, it's a simple thing to build and put out in your yard and create habitat for these uh, cavity nesting bees as well. You know, it's interesting to, to think uh, just a little patch of bare ground could be habitat, yeah. right? She yeah. Said, and I mean, know, I, yeah. she said, don't part put, of Amy's, don't put uh, don't, excuse me, don't put mulch or wood chips, just bare ground. Just the bare ground where they can tunnel in. And, and part of Amy's message is don't be overly tidy in your yard too. If you leave a little leaf litter out, that's a place that insects can overwinter and that that birds can discover them there. You know, it's a, a little bit of uh, untidiness will will help benefit your wild neighbors. Um, also, for the birds, uh, she mentions you know you have a bird feeder, leave some water, but uh, you can plant for birds. You put certain plants there that will help the birds. Exactly. Things like um, choke cherries that can do double duty in providing both food and a place for shelter and a place to raise young for birds. Um, sometimes we think we have to have a certain size of yard, right? But she's saying that uh, small places can be habitat. Right. Um, you could even, uh, if all you have is a balcony, Go ahead and put out, you know, um, some plants, some flowering plants that can attract pollinators, a bird feeder. And if you can, a little, you know, dish of water and you'll have created um, a little bit of habitat. Um, Lewis Kogan writes uh, about the benefits to us from nature, right, in cities, right? We, we've heard about this, but scientists are increasingly studying this. Um, maybe talk about that a little bit, what um, what nature in cities does for us. Yeah, the evidence is becoming really robust about how much um, we benefit from being able to connect with nature. There was a study done back in the 1980s that um, uh, was of people who had recently had a surgery and compared the difference in recovery times from people 
who had a view of trees from their window and people who didn't. And even just having the view of, a, of trees from their window helped people recover faster. And so there's um, a more recent study that showed that if you live in an area with um, a lot of street trees in it, it gives you health benefits that are equivalent to being seven years younger. There are all kinds of studies about how people um, experience less depression in, in uh, if they live in an area that has significant um, um, tree cover in it as well. And there's just all kinds of especially for kids studies about how important it is for kids to have access to nature as they're growing up as places that they can, you know, both um, discover and play, but it, it really helping with emotional regulation as well for young children. And uh, Lewis emphasizes that he says uh, kids need nature mentors, needs people to guide them to introduce them to nature. Right. So just simply having Urban nature accessible may not be enough um, for kids who grow up in an urban environment and may not have had experience in natural spaces before. And so that's a really important role that um, uh, people can play in their communities is to help um, attend events or be parts of groups that are introducing kids to urban nature. You include in the book Salt Lake City Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. I love this. <laughs> Do you have that? Could you read a few of those bullet points? Sure, Salt Lake sure. City Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. Yes, let me turn the, to that in the book quickly. And um, this is something that's becoming uh, more common in cities around the country. And the state of Utah also has a Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. But the Salt Lake City's uh, Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights says, we believe that every child has the right to catch a bug, follow a foothill trail, listen to the sounds of nature, observe a starry sky, play in the snow, splash in a stream, identify a wild plant, spot and identify a wild animal, visit a mountaintop, see Great Salt Lake, climb a rock, paddle a boat, explore a cave. And both the city and the state have websites um, around their Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights that will provide families with all kinds of ideas on how they can um, have those experiences. And I think the book also with the field trips in it would give uh, families lots of ideas on how they could um, uh, explore each of those, those rights in the Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, I just want to mention uh, this. This is very poignant to me. Um, in this essay, um, Lewis Kogan mentions a, a walk he uh, took and something he discovered. Uh, a couple of um, old mailboxes, mounted mailboxes in a ridge uh, in some rocks. You have a photograph of it here uh, above Salt Lake City. And inside, well, tell me, what was inside? Yeah, so inside this mailbox were notebooks where people could leave a message and that people had written really personal things um, in, in these notebooks where they, you know, kind of um, prayers, confessions, musing, really, you know, thinking about difficult moments in their lives, um, about personal struggles and hardships, but also um, 
a sense of seizing the moment and, and uh, resolving to live with, with newfound purpose. And that a common thread throughout many of these uh, notes was the beauty of nature and kind of the, the peacefulness that they were finding here on this mountain ridge overlooking the valley that seemed to provide them with um, a perspective and a way to process um, these uh, issues in their life that, that they could, um, that might not have been accessible to them uh, in, a, in a more urban environment, that being in nature was the key to, to having this experience in their life. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another um, essay here, Julia Corbett, who um, I'm reading is emeritus professor now at University of Utah. I remember her right. from a, uh, a conversation I had with her on this program several years ago about her wonderful book, Seven Summers, where she went up to Wyoming or somewhere, uh, yes, yes. build a cabin. <laughs> so, uh, uh, the subtitle is Naturalist Homesteads in the Modern West. I, I uh, remember talking to her about that book, and I, I thought, man, you're... You're you're uh, crazy and um, and uh, admirable. She she went up there and, and did this. I would never do it, but she did this anyway. Her uh, her um, essay in the book is about our responsibility, right? She talks about uh, the things that we should do uh, to preserve nature. For example, dark skies. We we ought to control light pollution. Right. The point of her essay is is that. Um, the challenges that we encounter in urban environments to our health impact wild creatures as well. And that if we think about creating healthy and urban environments um, for wild creatures, we're also creating healthy and urban environments for ourselves. So she talks about dark skies and how light um, at night, for example, um, can uh, lit up buildings in cities at night um, create, um, they attract migrating birds who then collide with the glass. But when the, um, we have too much light at night, it makes it really hard for us to regulate our circadian rhythms and, um, and get the sufficient sleep. And so dark, having dark skies at night would benefit both human beings and um, the birds and many other creatures in our cities. And she talks similarly about um, noise in urban landscapes, um, heat in urban landscapes, as well as clean air. And so her urge uh, or her um, challenge to all of us is to try to create dark, cool, quiet spaces and clean air in our cities for all of us. She mentions we learned some lessons during the COVID-19 lockdown, right? That that when we were just in our homes, it was quiet. It, we 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 uh, we hit that those goals. Now we're back to our regular lives. Uh, more work to be done. Right. I loved some of the examples that she provided in her essay about you know how um, you can't you know once once you uh, have experience this incredible change, you know, of places, for example, in India, where they saw the, you know, mountains for the first time, that you can't unsee that, right? That, that now that we know that this is possible, and that we could um, have different kinds of environments that we, you know, create for ourselves in our cities, if we, if we took up that challenge. Uh, just a couple more of these essays. Uh, the rest we'll have you read in the book, and then I, we'll take a break and want to get to species and trails. Uh, but you talked to Tony, how do you say his last name? Glio. Glio. He's the uh, forester, Salt Lake City forester, right? 
some He's people may, some people do not know some of the many cities, including Logan, have foresters. Yes, and he talks about his role as an urban forester with such joy that that is, you know, he's the lucky person who gets to take care of all the trees in our city. Uh, you have a section here: how to meet a tree. Uh, tell us a little bit about this. How do we how do we meet a tree? There's a picture of uh, uh, looks like a mother and her her, her son under yes. under a tree. Uh, I assume, uh, you know, getting to know the tree. Yeah. So. Trees are these amazing giants that live in our neighborhoods. I think um, when you stop and think about that such a huge living organism can live right alongside us, it's it's kind of miraculous. Um, and um, the uh, instructions here for how to meet a tree are really thinking about each season and how you might experience the tree throughout the changing seasons to stop in the spring and um, find a flowering tree and really take notice of all the, you know, the, the way the flowers smell, the way they look, who's being attracted by those flowers. And then in the summer to really uh, uh, take notice of the shade that the tree provides and the cooling uh, power of that tree. And then in the fall to um, get up close and uh, notice maybe uh, who's uh, preparing for winter around this tree and what what resources the tree is providing, whether it might be acorns or a place um, that uh, uh, a cavity where where a squirrel or raccoon could spend the winter. And then in the in the winter, um, uh, he writes, don't mistake leafless for lifeless, that there's still a lot going on uh, in the urban forest. And I think that actually winter is a really beautiful time of year to observe trees in the city when they don't have their leaves. You really see the beautiful structure of the, the branches and um, um, begin to recognize um, the trees by their form and by the patterns that their branches create. I'll just skip uh, last to the the, the essay on uh, being a citizen scientist. Uh, I, Ellen Erickson, is that how you pronounce? Yes, it? Ellen Erickson. Um, who's a who's a uh, nature educator? Um, tell me why you included this: the opportunity, a growing movement, right? Citizen scientist movement. Right. So, um, citizen scientists are people without formal scientific training who um, get involved in projects to gather data, and they can even become part of analyzing data and publishing. More and more scientific papers are now being published um, with citizen scientists listed as authors. And what's really critical about urban areas is that scientists can't really understand the ecology of urban areas without the help of citizen scientists because there are so many areas that um, are private that they can't get into. And so they rely on the help of citizen scientists to you know, look and notice what's in their yard and record observations and share that. And so um, there's some really wonderful stories that Ellen tells about um, citizen science projects that are looking at um, uh, understanding how new species are dispersing along the Wasatch Front, like the European firebugs um, and the Eastern fox squirrels, and also a wonderful story about fireflies in Utah. Um, a species that, um, I mean, I grew up in Utah, and one thing I knew is that there's no fireflies here. That just doesn't happen in Utah. That's something that happens back east. 
But with the help of citizen scientists, um, the museum's entomologist, Christy Bills, and her colleagues at um, uh, BYU have found fireflies, I believe, populations in every county now and spreading out now into, I believe, um, Colorado and Wyoming as well. And it's because the fireflies are active for a relatively short time of year at night in marshy places where people don't typically tromp around. And if citizen scientists weren't out there looking for them, there's no way that the scientists could cover um, the ground that they would need in that short time of year that they're active. And so collaborations between citizen scientists and scientists are really critical for helping us understand um, the ecology of, of our urban habitats. So if one of our listeners is uh, interested, how do you get involved? There's a lot of organizations. What? Uh, how do you get started? Yeah, so um, the Natural History Museum website has a whole section dedicated to citizen science, so there are a number of projects that you can get involved with there. Okay, great. Natural History Museum of Utah. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with a brief uh, final segment where we'll talk about some species that you can encounter and also some uh, mention the trails. There, there are several trips uh, outlined in this book. The book is Wild Wasatch Front. We're talking with uh, Lisa Thompson, who's uh, an author along with the Natural History Museum of Utah. More following this. to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Lisa Thompson, uh, who is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at Natural History Museum of Utah. Uh, she and the museum are authors of a book. Uh, it's uh, called, just out today, it's called Wild Wasatch Front. Uh, interesting book and uh, valuable to have on your, your bookshelf. Uh, so Lisa Thompson, we just have about four minutes, and it's a very brief final segment. Um, so uh, second section of the book is uh, species to know. We've talked about many species here. I just want to mention um, that plants are included. Sometimes we forget that. And one of the species uh, here is the common dandelion, which you know some of us consider a weed. But uh, <laughs> tell me about the common dandelion. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so dandelions are a plant that, that humans have valued for millennia. Every part of a dandelion is edible, its leaves, its roots, its flowers, um, and they're still grown as a, a cash crop today. You can, you know, in some grocery stores, you can still buy dandelion greens. Um, they also were grown as a garden flower and um, considered very beautiful. There's a wonderful um, early guide to Central Park in New York that just gushes about um, how beautiful it is to see the dandelions growing in the green lawn of, of the park because it looks like a starry sky being reflected in a green lake. And it was really the you know rise of the modern manicured lawn that changed a uh, perspective on dandelions and they became, you know, undesirable weeds. But I think something lovely that came out of that is the way that children have a relationship with dandelions mm -hmm. now because parents don't care how many dandelions their children pick. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a child, I remember growing up, you know, popping the heads off dandelions and making dandelions chains. And there's all kinds of rhymes and stories that go with dandelions. 
Yeah, I so, remember that, that as well. A part of childhood. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. We just have about a minute left uh, just to mention the um, the section called Nearby Nature Field Trips. You have 21 uh, of these. Uh, Ogden River Parkway, um, Great Salt Lake Shorelands Preserve, Red Butte L- Loop, um, Highland Glen Park, North Utah Shoreline Trail. Uh, a lot of these. Uh, maybe just in, in a, a very brief time, 30 seconds to a minute. What was your criteria? What did you... How did you choose these? Yeah, I really looked for places that were urban, that were um, in cities or right on the edge of a city, not up in the canyons. I looked for places that would be accessible for families. I had a colleague at the museum here, Tim, and I was always thinking, what would Tim and his family be doing here? So places that um, have restrooms, many of them are stroller friendly, um, and but also then trying to find a variety of habitats um, from strolling along an urban river to exploring a wetland to looking up a bit in the drier foothills as well. So people could see um, a diversity of the species um, that are mentioned in the book. Yeah, a lot of a lot of fun to be had. You could map out all those 21 trails. And of course, you know, if you're not on the Wasatch Front, I'm sure there's some great trails where you are as well. Well, it's a wonderful book, Wild Wasatch Front, Exploring the Amazing Nature in and Around Salt Lake City. Um, it's out from Lisa Thompson in the Natural History Museum of Utah. Lisa Thompson is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at Natural History Museum of Utah. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll go out as we do on Tuesdays with Utah StoryCorps. Thanks. It's time again for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Logan. My name is Jason Kimber. I am inside a beautiful Airstream trailer. I am David Simmons. Basically, we're best friends, and Dave will be my interviewer. Jason, you grew up in the beautiful, sagey, unincorporated community, Grouse Creek. My ancestors were some of the very first people to go out there. People say, how big is it? And I would say it's a population of about 100 people, and I always round up. What was it like growing up out in Grouse Creek? Oh, I had about 70 sheep. Beautiful fall afternoon. My brother and I were raking leaves, crisp in the air. My sheep were just out kind of grazing, grazing in the field to the south. Beautiful. Their, their wool coats had really started to grow in, preparatory for the cold winter ahead. I hear, I hear a little lamb in distress. What does that sound like? Help. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it's coming from the direction of the cesspool. Oh, no. I know. I run over there. Huge tall weeds that have grown around it. I get closer, I peer over the weeds, and my lamb has stumbled into this cesspool. It's disgusting. Can you think of a worse way to go? And so... I run over to, I'm like, Wade, Wade, you got to help me. Like, we've got a problem. One of my lambs is in the sewer. Wade is your brother. Wade's my older brother by five years. Great protector, great brother until this day. (laughs) (laughs) To his credit, he dropped his rake and he ran over quickly. He looked in the cesspool. He saw the sheep. He looked at me. He looked at the sheep. He looked at me. And he's like, nope. I'm like, what a jerk. Put some time into the schedule later to hate him for this. I mean, this little lamb was just doing its best to keep his little lamb nose above not water, above that stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I couldn't do it. So I just, I smashed all the weeds down with my little 10-year-old body. I'm kind of like army crawling, getting close to the edge. I reach out, Dave, and I'm just stretching with all I'm worth to just reach for my lamb. We're locking eyes. Like, he knows that I'm going to save him. And I, I just will my fingers to go just a little bit longer. And, buddy, I just I clenched my fingers into his, his woolly little shoulders. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I start to pull. 
and I start to pull, and he gets closer to me, and I'm like, I got this. Well, we get to the edge. He was heavy, heavier, heavier than he than normally he would have been because he's now saturated. And with all my 10-year-old strength, I, I pull him up out of this bog of eternal stench. It just smells so bad. I pull that lamb up, and I basically pull him right onto my chest, and I fall down onto my back, and he's just sitting there. And Dave, it would be disingenuous of me if I didn't say, there was a moment where I was like, would it have been so bad if I had lost one? <laughs> but that was a fleeting thought. He jumped off, kind of rolled off, stood, and I think this must be something in the animal kingdom. The lamb starts to shake. Oh, boy. And I'm just right there. It's just all over Sorry. me. <laughs> I just lay there, wiping the stuff basically from my eyes. Oh. And I look up, and I'm like, what just happened? And then I hear another noise, and it's my brother. He is leaning on his rake for all it's worth because he is laughing harder than I've ever heard him laugh before. The rake gives way. He rolls onto the ground. He's into the leaves like it's a mess. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go in the house. My mom will save me. And um, she saw me coming, and she met me at the door. She didn't have to say anything, but in my mind, I heard it. Don't even think about coming into my home after what just happened. Fast forward to the spring when it's shearing time, and we had the sheep shearer come, professional sheep shearer. He was so fast, it's so fun to watch. My job was to just make sure that he always had a sheep. Assembly line type of deal. You're just passing the sheep. I'm just passing them on. And I knew little old Stinky was coming. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I didn't want to tell, but like his wool was stained. I made sure that he got to him. He he grabs him, he's just like, what? He sheared him real quickly. My job was also to take the fleece and to put it in the sack, and I just went ahead and took that fleece and I put it in the garbage. In the garbage, yeah. Because who, what are you gonna do with like stinky? You're wool? Not making a t-shirt out of that. Poor guy. But I love, I love animals. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and go down a little memory lane and do this interview. Thank you, Dave. And this is Utah Story Corps. Thank you for coming along. See you next Friday, same time, same place. Support for Logan StoryCorps comes from Cache County and from USU Credit Union, a division of Golden West.